Greetings and welcome to the AK-47 podcast, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey. I am a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And today I'm going to be continuing with part two of the essay, Marriage and Everyday Life. And before I dive into the second part of the essay, I want to remind you, if you haven't already done so, to go back and listen to part one. Uh, That's actually two episodes ago because last week I was at a global socialist feminist conference and I did an interview with another participant there, which I uploaded. But I am coming back to the marriage and everyday life question today. And there's a little bit of context that you need, uh, particularly around the question of the NEP or the new economic policy. In this essay, in the section that I'm going to read, Kolontai refers to the NEP men, NEP men. And the new economic policy was essentially a kind of reintroduction of capitalism to the Soviet economy after the end of the Civil War and the end of the famine. Because basically, Lenin decided that the Soviet Union needed to get its economy up and running again, and just requisitioning grain forcefully from the peasants wasn't really doing the job. And so he decided to allow for the reintroduction of markets, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, among some of the older Bolsheviks, particularly Kolontai, was a very unpopular move. The reintroduction of markets into the Soviet economy put a lot of women in a very precarious position and also allowed certain members of society to get wealthy or gain money at the expense of their comrades. So it's in the context of the NEP that the 1918 Family Code, the original Soviet Family Code is being discussed and going to be revised into what will become the 1926 Family Code. And she is, in this essay, trying desperately to convince people that the provisions included in the 1926, the draft of what will become the 1926 Family Code, are insufficient to protect women, particularly with regard to marriage and alimony. So I'm just going to read the first part of this section, and then I'll stop and give a little bit more context and continue. I also want to say that because this is a very detailed text, I'm actually skipping around a bit. I am abridging a fair amount of the text. So I am just trying to give you a taste of the arguments that she's going to be giving to her her fellow Bolsheviks. Does registration or the exclusive recognition of the de jure marriage benefit the woman? It might seem that registration gives the woman more security if, of course, the husband is in a position to be able to provide for her. But the de facto wife has the same security. Our law states that she also has the right to alimony. Our new law is guilty of considerable inadequacies, for it strengthens rather than eliminates the main defect of the law by the vagueness of the provisions on alimony. Okay, I just need to stop there real quickly and and make it clear that the old law recognizes formally registered marriages, what she calls de jure marriages, but also informally recognized marriages or what we might call common law marriages, and she is calling de facto marriages. So she goes on to say, the new law is designed to suit the nep men, the wealthy and the rich peasants. Paragraph 12 states that every married man or woman who is unable to work has the right to demand alimony from his or her partner. But from what husband shall the woman receive assistance? From the de jure or the de facto husband? When the husband is able to support his wife, when he is a specialist or a rich peasant, his wife will get something and everything is fine. But how can a man support his wife if he has not enough or only just enough to live on himself? 
Or how can a peasant give his wife alimony when he lives on bread and kvass for six months of the year? How can he support a divorced wife when he has only one cow, one house, and four children? Or what about the worker whose wages are hardly sufficient for himself alone? What can he be expected to contribute? And if, to add to this, he has a de facto wife with children, can he support two families? Of course not. Take another case. The wife has worked for many years on the same peasant plot as her husband. When she divorces him, she must receive half of the property they have accumulated. But what will she receive if they have no property? Alimony, it follows, can only be received when the husband in question is at hand and has a sufficiently full purse. Is it right that we should base our norms on the position of some 100,000 or so well-off people? We have seen what the law gives the de jure wife. Let us turn now to the case of the de facto wife. The de facto wife is to be made equal with the de jure wife. But who is the de facto wife? Which one is she? I doubt whether there is anyone among you who did not have at least three de facto wives before you were 30. Who exactly are comrades Krilenko and Brandon Burtsky supporting? They say that the court tackles this problem, discovers how long the couple lived together, whether or not they had a joint household, whether, in a word, they were man and wife. The court decides these complex questions. Comrade Krilenko maintains that we are taking a step forward when we do not punish a person for having a de jure and a de facto marriage at the same time. But on the other hand, our code makes it illegal to register a de jure marriage if a de facto marriage already exists. This is one of the inadequacies of the code. So essentially here, what Alexandra Kolontai is trying to get her comrades to see is that recognizing the de jure and de facto wives and as equal and expecting husbands to pay for their upkeep in the case of a divorce or a dissolution of the relationship is absurd, particularly if the men are peasants or workers and don't have the money to support one family, let alone two, and also the discomfort that it puts between the women who are either a de jure wife or a de facto wife. And there's also this interesting contradiction in the law, the new law, that if you are in a de facto relationship with a woman, you can't register a de jure marriage. And that's also true the other way around. A woman who has a de facto husband cannot also marry a de de jure husband. So there's this attempt to try to recognize all of these relationships as valid under the Soviet code. But the problem here that Kolontai sees is the real issue is who pays for the upkeep of the woman and children in a situation where women's wages are not high enough to support her and her children. And whereas in the original vision of the Bolsheviks, it was supposed to be the new Soviet state that would provide care and resources to the woman and her family in the event of a dissolution of a relationship. But by 1925, and with the reintroduction of markets and the new economic policy, it becomes very clear that the state can no longer or cannot, because it never really did, take care of all of these women and children who are being abandoned by their husbands. And so these alimony payments, this way of determining whether or not, even if they're not legally married, the court can determine whether you were in a de facto marriage with a partner, the state can then force, and it does force men to try to pay for these 
abandoned women and children. And so, of course, what Kolontai sees here is the return to a sort of morality whereby women are responsible for the children and men are responsible for paying women to care for these children, rather than having women be independent and having the state support them in their caregiving roles. So what Kolontai is hoping to do in this speech and in the provision of the next law is to abolish alimony, to get rid of it altogether so that it's no longer beholden on men to support these women, but actually to transfer that responsibility to the new Bolshevik state. So back to Kolontai. The economic situation of the worker, of course, plays a considerable role here. For what alimony can, in fact, be taken from him? He has so little money, he could not pay the third of his wages that the law justly demands. It frequently happens that when a factory worker finds out that part of his wage is threatened by an alimony order, he throws in his job and transfers to another factory, and so on. In such cases, there is no one from whom the woman can receive money. Let us now consider the question of alimony for children. Provisions for the welfare of both legitimate and illegitimate children is not peculiar to our law, for such provisions exist in Western Europe as well. But what have our provisions meant in practice? Comparatively few such cases come before the courts. According to the statistics, out of 78 cases, only three were alimony orders concerning the welfare of children. This is evidence that the women themselves do not believe that the fathers of their children can be found. But it is not only a sense of hopelessness of the search that holds women back. There are other reasons. One woman does not want to beg and humiliate herself. Another is afraid of speaking out about her relationship because the father of her child has a de jure wife. A third is simply ashamed, etc. As a result, the situation is far from bright. Alimony was introduced to ease the position of the mother, but this aim has not been achieved. Either there is no one from whom to receive alimony, or the woman does not want to fight for her rights. As a result, children are often thrown out onto the streets, the number of homeless children increases, and the healthy development of the future generation is endangered. To designate certain individuals responsible for the unemployed and unemployable, knowing them to be incapable of the task, is simply to wash one's hands of a difficult question that needs solving. The new draft creates three types of wife, the registered, the unregistered, and the casual. Whereas the first two now have equal rights, the third has no rights at all. But who are these casual wives? They are the peasant women who have no land and drift to the towns looking for work, the working women living in the dreadfully cramped and impossibly hard conditions around the plants and factories. The law refuses to defend the rights of these women. From all that I have already said, it is clear that the provisions of the new marriage law designed to guarantee the interests of the mother and child cannot satisfy us. For the code strengthens petty bourgeois tendencies and fails to take into consideration the perspective of our socialist construction. The code must therefore be changed. The new code is as unsatisfactory as the old in that it does not guarantee the welfare of children and mothers with small children. That is why it is essential that we consider the matter seriously and approach the reworking of the code carefully. Okay, and now I'm going to skip over a section where Kolontai basically argues for a kind of global national fund, a 
a, a federal fund, if you want to call it that, which would basically be an insurance fund for mothers and women who have children. Basically, she is suggesting what she always suggests, which is that the role of supporting women and children should be taken by the state and that the state should collect tax revenues from the people that would then go into a fund that would support women with children who are abandoned by their husbands or lovers or whoever. Because as she said, there are registered wives and unregistered wives, but then there are also casual wives. And the whole idea of Kolontai's sexual liberation policies was that we should be able to have sex with whoever we wanted without having to face these dire consequences. And the only way to do that is not to rely on alimony payments, which have failed for the last um, years in the Soviet Union, but instead to socialize the care of bringing up children, taking care of women with small children. I think that this is really her most radical idea, but she knows that there's going to be pushback because her plan is expensive and she knows that the Soviet Union does not have the material resources. What's really interesting about this piece is she also speaks very openly about birth control. There is this one section where she says, there is one question to which I would like to turn your attention, and that is the question of birth control. Expressed very briefly, the essence of what I want to say is this, let there be fewer children born, but let them be of better quality. Every child should be wanted by its mother. It is vital that the interest of each child be defended not only by its mother and father, but also by the whole collective. It is necessary to raise the consciousness of the population correspondingly, to conduct a campaign to explain the importance of these points, and to develop agitational work on a broad scale. After this paragraph, Kolontai goes on to discuss the morality of young Soviet people and concerns that some of the older Soviets have about the loosening of sexual mores in the Soviet Union, among the Komsomol in particular. And she basically defends the idea that people should be able to fall in love and have intimate relations with people that they're attracted to without fear of consequences. And I think this is particularly radical because it follows her discussion of birth control. So essentially, at this moment in 1925, other than abortion, which is legal in the Soviet Union at this point for women, there aren't many reliable forms of birth control. And Kolontai here is saying that in order to liberate women, they need to be in control of their bodies. They need to have children that they want and not to have children that are unwanted. That actually will be better for society in the long run. So before I read the very closing section of this essay, I just want to say that I did skip over a part where she talked about marriage contracts, which would essentially be something like prenuptial agreements between partners. But the thing that I really wanted to focus on here were these insurance funds for mothers and children, as well as the question of birth control. So I'm just going to read the final two paragraphs now. Comrades and citizens, I bring my remarks to a close. We have put forward the idea of a marriage contract. We have suggested the creation of the necessary insurance fund and have brought up the question of birth control. If these demands are taken up, this will give us a guarantee that the new socialist lifestyle will be built, the most important part of which must be socialist construction. Down with all hypocrisy and all fear of speaking out over the question of marriage. Many of our revolutionary comrades are afraid to be frank. The old forms of marriage are dying out, and life is bringing forward new forms which correspond to the new conditions. Make way for the future, a future based on healthy, comradely relations, free from the negative tendencies and guaranteeing the correct development of the rising generation. We greet the collective that educates the younger generation and raises its cultural 
societal level. We have no need of the kind of family where the husband and wife are united only with each other and are separated from the collective. We greet the new conditions of life that give joy and happiness to the new labors of humanity. This essay of Colin Ties actually isn't read or discussed all that often, partially because there's a lot of specific detail to the discussions around the draft of this 1926 family code. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense to those of you who aren't like totally steeped in Soviet history. But I do think it's interesting that you have Kolontai here making these very concrete suggestions and that she's really sticking to her guns about the socialization of the family and doubling down on the idea that sexuality and our intimate relations should be decoupled from economic considerations, even if those economic considerations are alimony in terms of the state abdicating responsibility for children to these wayward husbands who quit their job at the first sign that there's going to be an an alimony order which will dock their wages. If you think about it, Kolontai's attack on marriage here is very clearly an attack on the institution of marriage or even de facto relationships, de facto marriages, and their relationship to economics, to material goods. The idea that the state can't afford to care for a woman who has a child by a man that she's not married to, or if a woman who has a child and her husband leaves her, her inability to take care of herself and her children is what makes women so economically dependent on men. It's also what forces women into these subservient relationships with men. And here, Kolontai is saying marriage should not be about money. It should not be about material things. It should be about affection and attention. And that's what a socialist society should be doing. Now, if you live in a capitalist country and you've ever been married and divorced, or if you have parents who've been divorced, what you'll know is when you go to court for a divorce settlement, the thing that they care the most about is property and the division of property. And included in that property is the custody of children. If you just think of the word custody of children, it's a property relationship. Kolontai's dream here in this essay, as in so many of her other writings, is to try to get economics, to try to get these material considerations, these transactional considerations out of our love lives. Now, as we know, she's not successful. They're still with us in 2019 as much as they were back in 1926. But I think it's important to understand that there was an attempt and that it's still an ongoing project. And it's something that we need to think about when we think of family codes and marriage law and family law in general, the ways in which our laws create economic dependence between men and women in particular ways and heterosexual relationships. And obviously now when we have gay marriage, also there are relationships and obligations between partners that are married. Uh, As long as you've gone before the state and you've declared your wedding legal, you are in a property relationship as far as the government is concerned. And when you end that relationship, the government will be in charge of dividing the property fairly. That's the end of this episode. I am contemplating taking a bit of a break i'll be traveling a fair bit this summer and so i may not be posting these episodes as regularly as i have been so far and i also recently learned that i should encourage my listeners to review the podcast because i guess that helps other people find the podcast so if you like what's going on please subscribe and review and tell your friends about it and until next time thanks for listening and keep up the good fight